some of you know, if you drive up during the middle of the week, um, you'll see this motorcycle that's setting out in front of the church. Yes, it's mine. And one of the things that I began to realize as I think about my motorcycle and my cars is that I drive them differently. There's lots of reasons why you drive them differently. Uh, one is one has two wheels, the other has four wheels. Uh, one is that you are barely exposed, the other, you know, you're a little bit surrounded by metal. But also there's a mindset in the way that you drive motorcycles and cars. Usually, when I get into my car, I have a destination that I'm aiming for. As I'm sitting down in my car and putting on my seatbelt and doing all those kinds of things, in my mind, there is that destination, and I'm already working out the best way to get there. I'm thinking, what is the best route for me, usually the fastest route for me to get from here to there? If I'm not certain what it is, I'll pull out my cell phone. And I'll open up Google Maps and I'll put in the destination and it will tell me the fastest way to get there and how to avoid traffic. And and that's what it's all about. It's about getting from point A to point B as fast and as efficiently as I can possibly do so. Sometimes I won't do that. Sometimes I'll kind of, you know, drive the back ways or whatever in my car, but not very often. Then there's motorcycle driving. Sometimes on my motorcycle, I'm getting from point A to point B. Like when I drive it here to, to, to church in the morning to work. But then there are other times. There are other times you jump on that motorcycle. Yes, I always wear a helmet. Yes, you know, I always do all those kinds of things. Wear my leather jacket. And I just go. I start down some road and I, as I'm going down the road, I'll think to myself, I wonder what it would be like to go off that way. And just on the spur of the moment, I lean my bike and I go off down to that road and I deliberately try to get lost. I try to be out in the, the farthest reaches of that particular road and then I try to figure back how, I'll figure how to get back to where I want to be. And yeah, I have my cell phone with me just in case I can, you know, quick pull up the GPS. But I'm just sort of meandering. I'm just sort of enjoying the experience. The wind, you know, blowing through my face, my hands freezing on the, on the handlebars, all that kind of stuff is just part of the experience and I'm out there roaming and enjoying. But it's not very productive. Unfortunately, my motorcycle gets about 50 miles to a gallon, so it doesn't really matter. And you're probably thinking, what does that have to do with giving? Well, the fact is that when it comes to giving, there are some who are car driving givers, and there are some who are motorcycle riding givers. The motorcycle riding giver is the one that just kind of is in it for the experience. They just want to experience the, the joy of giving. 
or they want to be connected with something that's going on. And, and all of that is fine, but there's no real plan. There's no real sense of where am I going with this? What's the purpose behind this other than the immediacy, the responding to the immediate need or, or just choosing to go off and, and be a part of something? And there is a place for that. But when you read scripture, what you find is this. That God's word calls us to be car driver givers. That there is a sense of destination. There is a plan and a purpose and a deliberateness about what we are involved in. There is a point A and a point B. And I'm going to seek to find the best way to get there. The fastest way to get there. The most efficient way to get there. And like when you read scripture, what you find is, yes, there is a place for the sort of motorcycle giving where in the immediacy of the moment, the, the spontaneity of the moment, the, the d- degree of the need or the joy of the need or whatever it may be, I, I just kind of respond to it. But that's not the norm. God's word says very clearly that when it comes to our giving, whether it's giving to the church, whether it's giving to, you know, hurricane recovery, whether it's giving to missionaries, whatever it is, there needs to be a plan and a purpose in the way that we do so. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians. And uh, in the Pew Bible, if, you, if you're using that particular Bible, let me see, I have the page number somewhere. I think it's page 820. And in 820, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is, in a sense, repeating something that he said just a few pages over in your scripture, but in a previous letter to the Corinthians. And it's the passage that Dave read this morning. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And in those two passages, Paul tells us how to be car driving givers. How to be planned and purposed in our giving of his resources for God to use in a way that he finds pleasing. Now, we've been in 2 Corinthians 9 for quite a while now. And as you remember, the first thing we did is we looked at the fact that grace is the dominating word over this entire chapter. Over, in fact, 8 and 9, over and over again, Paul talks about grace. And he talks about grace in terms of, yes, the the grace of God, the, the unmerited favor that God pours upon his people. He uses the word grace that way. But he also uses the word grace in a couple of different ways. He uses the word grace to talk about prayer. And he talks about saying grace. Like we do when we sit down and we are at a meal. We we say grace. We we proclaim God's grace and providing what it is. And, And prayer is an act of grace. Especially as we pray for others. But one of the key ways he uses the word grace in chapters 8 and 9 is talking about the grace. 
the giving of the Corinthian church to the church in Jerusalem because they were facing an incredible famine. And so Paul says, I want you to be a part of the grace. This act of grace, this, this act of kindness, this act of yes, worship. One of the ways that every believer can worship, whether you are present here or not, is by giving. Giving is an act of worship. It is declaring back to God, God, you have been generous and gracious to me. And now I choose to be generous and gracious with what you've given to others. We looked at the word generous, which dominates this passage again. It's the second most used word in chapters 8 and 9. And then last week, we began talking about the event, the giving, the offering that is being taken by Paul as he travels through these Gentile churches to help support the church in Jerusalem, not because it's the mother church, but because they are struggling. There's an incredible famine that is going on in Jerusalem. So Paul says, let's be a part of this. Let's give generously. Let's show that we as Gentile believers are united together in a body that the world separates, Jew and Gentile, but we are united and we're going to show the world that through this incredible giving, this incredible gift that we're giving. And last week we looked at the fact that before you can give to God, before you can give, before your giving is an act of worship, you first need to have a glimpse of God. And one of the things that I don't like about preaching is if you missed last week, this week is going to kind of be disjointed. Because you need to understand that you cannot give as God requires, not requires, as God asks us to give. Unless you understand who God is. That God owns everything. Everything you have, you are simply given by God to manage. And in God's economy, you are the manager, the steward, not the owner. He's the owner. And so everything I have, the question becomes, how can I use this in a way that pleases God? But also, not only is God the giver, he's the one that does it generously. And so as a representation of a generous God, God's people are called upon to be generous. Generous in our giving. Generous in our responses. Generous to the needs that surround us. And so when you pull it all together and we begin to look this week at this concept of giving, this is what we come to understand. That generous and planned proportionality is the foundation of New Testament giving. That when we think about New Testament giving, it's not based on the Old Testament. We're going to look at that in just a moment. It's where we ended last week. But there's a whole new concept that Paul says, this is how the church gives. This is how the people of Christ give. This is how New Covenant believers give. This ought to be what drives us encourages us.
motivates us in our giving. The first thing we come to understand is this, that God is well pleased with those who are generous proportional givers. And there's two important words there. One is generous. Yes, it means we're willing to give, even to a point sometimes where we sacrifice to help others. The Macedonian church who gave over and above what they were able to give to help those who were starving in Jerusalem. Macedonians said, you know what? We have food. We have clothing. We have shelter. But the people in Jerusalem don't. And even though it's more than we can really handle, we want to be a part of this. Generous and proportional. Now, if you've been around churches long enough, you're going, oh, man, here comes the tithe preaching. Nah, I gave up on tithing long ago. I have a better message. I have a better system. I have a new covenant system. You see, if you begin to think about tithing, you need to think in an Old Testament way. And Old Testament tithing was based on the tithe, which means a tenth. And so Old Testament thinking, we think we understand what Old Testament giving was about. And so we think in terms of, oh, they gave 10%. If I have 10 cobs of corn, I give one to the Lord. If I have 10 coins, I give one to the Lord. If I have, that's not what happened. The division was a tenth because it's easy to do. You know, you know when you're not giving a tip, I've just gone to 20%. You know why? It's easy. You just double the amount, move a zero, and you're fine. 10% is easy. Just move a, remove a zero or two zeros or whatever it is. But when you begin to read it, you find out it's a very much more complicated system. First of all, as we mentioned last week, there were two tithes, at least. There might have been two and a third tithe. But when you read in Leviticus chapter 17, I'm sorry, 27 and verse 30, that's the first tithe. Give your tithe. Give your tenth. Give it to the, to the leaders of, of, of Israel. Give it to the Levites, the priests. Give it to them, and they're going to use it to support the temple and to support all that was going on. That was your first tithe. Then you gave a second tithe. You saved one-tenth throughout the year, and you used that second tithe in order to be a part of the religious celebrations, to make your journey to Jerusalem, to the temple, or to the tabernacle. You, may, you use that second tithe to celebrate God, to rejoice in who God was and is. And you read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 14, in verses 22 and following. Where, where the writer Moses of Deuteronomy says, take that tithe and spend it on celebrating the Lord. And then every third year, that second tithe went just to the poor. So that, that second tithe on the anniversary of the third year didn't go to celebrating the festivals and stuff. You saved it. And gave it to the poor. So what are we up to? 
Now, but that doesn't end it. Remember that in the Old Testament, you had to give offerings. You had to bring your sacrifice to the Lord. And so if you sinned, you had to bring a sacrifice to be given in sacrifice as a demonstration of your faith that God will forgive you. If you were involved in a ceremony, you had to bring your sacrifice so that you could be clean and cleansed and stand before God and demonstrate that he is holy and you're not. And he provides the means by which we can come before him. And so over and above your tithe, you were required to pay for the sacrifices. If you were poor, it was a dove. If you weren't quite so poor, had some money, it was a lamb. And if you were really rich, you brought an ox. So it's even more than 20%. But that didn't end it. The required care for the poor. Your gifts, your loans, your gleaning in the field. Remember, they weren't allowed to cut the corners of their fields. They had to leave that for the poor to come and to harvest out of that in order that they would have food to eat. Now, how big your corner was was based upon your generosity. But that was a part of your income. We don't think that way because we think of money, not in terms of field and harvest. And that doesn't end it. And then on top of all of that, offerings were given for special purposes. Remember when they wanted to build the temple? David came and said to the people, would you give that we can build the temple? And the people responded that was over and above their sacrifices, over and above their giving to the poor, over and above their two tithes. They were pouring out. In fact, it got so incredible. David had to come and say, enough, please don't give anymore. We're not saying that, by the way. One of the things you begin to understand as you read through this, there's very little opportunity for generosity. Most of it is obligation. You are obliged. In fact, as you read, if you read Malachi and chapter 3 and verse 8, Malachi says, if you don't bring your tithe, listen, you are stealing from the Lord. Not a good thing to do. If you wanted to be generous, there was only really two ways to be generous. Three ways, maybe. One, the size of your, of your sacrifice. You could be generous and give more. You could give an ox and the Levites got to par- take part in it and certain of the feasts, people, other people got to share in. You could be generous there, but not with your tithes. You'd be generous in what you give to the poor. Your corner could be bigger than somebody else's. Remember that if you made a loan, that loan was forgiven every so many years in the Old Testament system. Even if it was paid back or not, there you could be generous. And you could be generous with your special offerings. But most of it was obligatory. Most of it was necessary. Now, 
Here's the part that we go, yes, until we really understand it. The tithe is never mentioned in the New Testament except to describe something historical. Why? Why did God... Why doesn't God come and say, you must give 10% in, in April and 10% in October? And why did he do that? Why did it change? Why a new system? Well, two reasons. One is, every time there's a new covenant, we live under the new covenant, there's a new way of living. But two, it's because God wants us to be generous, cheerful, givers. He wants every aspect of our giving to be generous and joyous and gracious. That means every single dollar I put in a plate, every single check I send to a missionary, every single donation I give to, you know, children's, children's fund or whatever it may be, all of those things are an act of grace. They're an act of generosity. There is no obligation. And the deacons just went... <clears throat> Because the New Testament system is this. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly. You know how you can tell if you're giving reluctantly? If you're under the old system of tithe and you think that 10% is exactly what you need to give. No more, no less. 10% belongs to God. The rest belongs to me. That's when you're afraid to, to estimate. You know, if you got $1,313 in your paycheck, you give 133 point, whatever the cents are. Can't even estimate up. And heaven forbid if you estimate down. Or you get into these big debates in your head. Do I give my gross or do I give my net? Do I give pre-tax or do I give post-tax? You know what? God says, give graciously, generously. Give not out of obligation. Give out of joy and celebration. Because everything you give in the new covenant is an act of grace and generosity. And the more generous we are, the more blessing God pours on us, not financially, God isn't promising that if I give $100, he'll give back 1000 It's better than that. If I give to God, he blesses my heart. He, he, he expands my relationships. He, he saves it for eternity and blesses for eternity. He, he stores it up and rewards those who are generous now by transferring my wealth from now to eternity. I'll tell you what, I'd rather get the payoff in eternity than in the temporal. That's what motivates my cheerfulness. God, I can be a part of this, and every cent is an act of grace. Answer the phone. 10% is a wonderful amount. It's a way to kind of keep things straight. But God says, you know, my standard is so much more Take a look at what I've given you. Taking a look at all I own that I've made you a manager of. Take a look at all of it. 
And don't ask the question, all right, God, how do I get the 10%? Ask the question, God, how would you have me use this? You see, if I'm a manager, I'm not so much concerned about what I want. I'm concerned about what the owner wants. It's what he wants to accomplish. It's what he wants to bring about. And so, God, if you ask me to give 90%, because I have the opportunity to do that, great. If I can only give 3%, and it's done out of generousness, it's done out of grace, it's done out of a, a desire and cheerfulness to be a part of what God is doing, great. That's usually not what you hear. But I think there's a greater challenge to the New Testament believer. And as you begin to read down through God's word, what you come to understand is that God wants us to give generously and proportionally. And the first thing we come to understand is that New Testament giving is based on generosity and proportionality. That's the concept, not the tithe, not the amount. It's about using what God has given to accomplish his purposes. And so the first thing you come to understand is that generous proportional giving is inclusive. We can all do it. We can all set aside an amount. If you're, if you're destitute, if you, if you have very, very little, maybe it's 1%, maybe it's 2%, maybe it's, you know, whatever it may be. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, that each of you, all of us, can be a part of this. Every believer, hear it again, every believer seeks God and says, God, how much would you have me give out of what you've given to accomplish your purposes? Every believer can do that. My father was the recording secretary for the church that I grew up in. And they used to pass out envelopes. And some of the kids would get envelopes. And as the recording secretary, keeping track of all the money, it would kind of drive him crazy. But there was a rejoicing when the children of the church would give 10 cents, 13 cents. Everyone can. Everyone can. Each one of you, Paul says, each one should. Not out of obligation, not out of being obligatory to some amount, but because God has been generous and you want to be generous back. And you can't give to God. You can't throw it up in the air and what he keeps, he keeps and the rest is mine. The way I show my generosity to God is to be involved in the things that he's doing. The second thing you notice about proportional giving is generous proportional giving is based on our income. Those with greater disposable wealth give a greater percentage. Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he says you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your 
income. Beloved, if you have greater disposable income, that's the money left over at the end. That's the money left over at the end of the month. Then you ought to consider before God giving a greater percentage. Giving more than just 10%. Why? Because God demands it? No, because it's this incredible opportunity to take what God has given to me and use it to accomplish his purposes and to understand that as I give more, he provides more so I can give more. That's proportional giving. And then finally, generous proportional giving is willing to be sacrificial when the need is great. If suddenly a family member or a church member is in a place of destitution because of sickness or because of whatever, there is a sense in which our giving, our response is even more generous. We may have to sacrifice in order that we might help out in this particular situation. Here, 2 Corinthians becomes the the passage where, where Paul writes, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, the food, the clothing, the shelter, you can abound in every good work, all good works. The Macedonians gave beyond their ability. Why? Because they saw people starving. And they had food. Paul says, give generous. Give proportionately. One of the best examples of this. Now, let me tell you, I'm not asking you to do this. But this is an example. Is John Wesley. John Wesley in his life was one of the richest men in England during his lifetime. When John Wesley began his work, he was teaching. And his salary was 30 pounds. Now, that's kind of hard to put into perspective for us, but that was a good wage. He was single. He had no children. And at 30 pounds, as he writes in his diary, he had money to spend on cigars and money to spend on art and money to spend on all of these things that, that he wanted to be involved in, and yes, even bourbon. He was spending his money on those kinds of things. By the way, I'm not supporting that. And he was living pretty comfortably on 30 pounds. John Wesley talks, and this changed his life. Of one night, there was a chambermaid cleaning up his apartment in the university. And she knocked on his door as she was finishing up and said, can you help? She had no money. She was destitute. It was freezing outside. All she had were these light gloves to wear. That's all she owned. Not even a coat or a scarf. John Wesley had just returned back 
from out buying these expensive pieces of art to decorate his room. And he saw this chambermaid, heard her need, went into his pocket to help out and realized there wasn't even one cent, one pound in his pocket to help out. John Wesley, in his diary, writes this. He asks the question, was the Lord pleased? Well, my master say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have adorned the walls with money with which you have screened, and which you might have screened this poor creature from the cold. O oh, justice, O oh, mercy, are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? He was torn apart. That he had spent all of his money on all of these things, but never considered that God might have wanted him to do something else to help others. And so he made a commitment. I'm going to give part of my giving, part of my wealth, part of my income. And then the first year when he had 30 pounds, he used 28 pounds for his living expenses and gave two pounds to the poor. It's not 10%. It's gracious, proportional. But look out. Later, his salary went up to 60 pounds. He said, Lord, this is the living standard I'm going to choose. And his living expenses that year, and I remember he had no children, he wasn't married, was 28 pounds. But that year he gave away 30 pounds to the poor. Eventually his salary would go up to 90 pounds. His living expenses, 28 pounds. He gave 62% to the poor. Eventually, and this was an amazing sum, 120 pounds. He lived on 28 pounds and gave 92 pounds to God's work and to the poor. Eventually, his income would hit 1,400 pounds. He became extravagant. He spent 30 pounds on living expenses. And gave 1,370 pounds to the work of the Lord. Do you notice what doesn't change? It's the opposite of our consumeristic society. Our consumeristic society says, if you make more, spend more. John Wesley said, no, if you make more, give more. Now, I'm not... I'm not saying give 90%. I'm not saying that this is right. He had no children. He had no wife. He was able to do this. He, you know, he was one of these guys that just kind of loved living on nothing. And there was kind of a real joy in that. But what I am saying is look at the idea. It is proportionality. That maybe I need to think less about my own comfort and my own creatureliness and my own expansion of my wealth. And I need to think more about expanding my heavenly wealth. That's all I want you to think about. 
that maybe if I got a raise this year, rather than raising my level of living, I raise my level of giving. That's proportional giving. Some of you are saying, let's go back under the tithe. (laughs) Now, the question becomes, what does this look like? And this is the other thing. I want us to be really careful in how we give. And I'm going to run through this fairly quickly. I spent a lot of time on that proportionality. But there's ways we ought to give. You need to plan it. We need to think it out. We need to be understanding what it is that we're doing. And when you read through God's word, this is what you come to understand, that our giving should be carefully planned and executed. Paul writes there in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, on the first day of the week, that's planning, that's periodic. I give it on a certain period. Maybe I do it monthly. Maybe I do it bi-monthly. Maybe I give it each check. Maybe I give it each quarter. However you want to do it. It's periodic. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money. Think about it. Plan it. Sit down and say, what do we need for our kids? What do we need for our kids' education? What do we need to pay our bills? What do we need for insurance? What do we need for retirement? What do we need for those kinds of things? Set an amount and say, you know what, Lord, you give us, as you give us more and more over that, we'll give more and more to you. goes on to say, in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will be made. Don't necessarily be, too often, our giving is just spontaneous. We hear the emotional peal. We see the the terrible picture on television. And yes, there's a place to give to that. But that's not the majority of our giving. Plan it. Set it. Think it through. Not only that, but Paul says that we should give the greatest share to where we're spiritually invested, to where we minister and are ministered to, to where we seek to feed others and they feed us spiritually. There's a very, very interesting passage, and I'll read it just real quick. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 9. Paul writes, For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an oxen while it is treading out the grain. It is about oxen, it is not about oxen, that God is concerned. Surely he has said this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this is written for us because when the plowman plows the threshers, I'm sorry, when the plowman and the thresher threshes, they ought to do it with the hope of sharing in the harvest. Here's the principle. Not pay your pastor more. I'm fine. It's where you are fed, where you are ministering, you ought to respond. For most of us, that's the local church. For some of us, it's other places. Do you listen to Chuck Swindoll or to somebody else on the radio every day and it's a part of what comes into your life? You ought to be supporting that. Is there a particular ministry that is helping and feeding your life or that you're a part of? You need to be giving to that. And it ought to be the biggest share of your giving. But Paul says we ought to give some other places. We give to those who are ministering well to others. Third John 
Verses 5 through 8, and actually that should be a dash, not a, because there is no 3 John 5. There's only one chapter. But in 3 John, chapter, um, 3 John, verses 5 and 8, the writer of John, John writes, give to those who are ministering. Every believer ought to have a missionary you support or a minister that you support directly. Personal relationship that, that you're giving a portion. Cindy and I have missionaries that we have supported for uh, about 40 years. We're a part of their life. When the, when the, the bucket challenge, you know, the, the water bucket with the ice on it, when that was going on, it was this missionary I was thinking about. He was diagnosed with ALS. And I could be a part of that. I was connected with him. It was a joy to have that water poured on my head. Now, when you're doing that, be careful. Examine the ministry. Examine their methods. Make sure that they are accountable to somebody, that somebody knows where the money is going. Be cautious with emotional appeals that come and say, oh, we need it now, we need it now. Be careful of those. We give to those that are in need. James chapter 2. This one's easy. If you see somebody that needs food, give. What we saw in Texas and what we saw in Florida. By the way, on the very bottom of the bulletin on the note side, there's a website. If you want to know who to give to, you can look up that website. You can even put in what you want to give to, what kind of categories. And this is a, this is a financial accountability group that, that knows where the money is going. And they're, they're very good at it. You could, they'll list all kinds of things. But when you give to those kinds of things, know where the money's going. And what I suggest is, yes, go out, look at those sites, look at those things, give some money. But no, as a church, we're going to respond. And we'll be talking about that more much later. And then give to secular organizations. I remember the Jerry Lewis telethon. Remember those? It was a legitimate need. That's how we give. That's the ways we give. Let me end with this challenge. Just a little video that I think sets before us and says, are you willing to be involved? Listen to the video. Meet Jim. Jim and his family started coming to church to wrestle with the big questions of life, meaning, purpose, and destiny. The church community slowly began to feel more and more like family. But Jim and his family knew, at some point, the church was going to raise the issue of money. It seemed like the only church people openly talking about money were ladies with big hair and southern accents and shady televangelists looking to add on to their mansions. It turned out Jim wasn't alone in his thinking. A lot of people saw giving money to the church as something for suckers or really radical Christians. Jim began to think. He wondered about all the stuff he had accumulated. His second snowboard, his television for the garage, all the items he purchased from the Sky Mall, especially the personal submarine. All those things he had to have were really of no value at all. Jim decided to turn his investigating to the Bible. A picture slowly began to emerge about giving and money. It turned out giving really wasn't about the church at all. It was about Jim's own heart. The people who seemed to get it right in the Bible were the ones who were both able to manage money and give it away freely. They were unencumbered by the need to have more stuff. Jim liked that idea. 
The Bible painted a picture of God as giver of everything. Jim was determined to reconsider how he thought about all his stuff and who it belonged to. So Jim and his family decided to give 1% of their income back to God. And then nothing really super awesome happened. At least visibly. Jim wasn't better looking. He wasn't granted special superpowers. His kids weren't instantly more loving to each other. But something was different. Jim felt more connected to his church community. He didn't feel conned by the church because it wasn't about the church. It was about what God was doing in his own heart. Jim was astonished. He began thinking about living a bit more simply, dealing with debt, and continuing to increase in his generosity. He actually started thinking about a future in which he would give 5, 6, and even 10% and beyond. But for now, he'd take a small step. And Jim's heart began to expand, ever so slightly. My challenge, take a small step. You might want to give more than 1%. That's kind of... But say, Lord, I want to be a part of this. Every cent I give is generous and gracious because it's not obligated. And Father, if you provide, if I'm giving 10% already and God gives a promotion, consider maybe giving a little more. And a little more. Not out of obligation, but cheerfully to be a part of what God is doing. And to let God work in your heart through that kind of giving. Father, thank you for the message we see here. May we be those who take it seriously. Father, the greatest gift is, of course, the giving of your son. The greatest act of generosity. The greatest act of grace. Father, we always pray and invite anyone who doesn't know your son as their savior to, to come and speak to somebody how, to know how they might know that. But Father, also those of us who are aware of that relationship, of your grace and generosity, may we choose to respond even in the area of giving in our money in order that we might be those cheerful givers, generous givers, reflecting your image in all that we do. And Father, we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.